0: I ask you to join me in prayer as we dive into this passage, this last chapter of the book of Numbers. Father, what a journey it's been. Some of us, um, maybe for the first time, encountering the power of your word in the book of Numbers. Maybe a book that in the past we would have ignored or found boring, uh, but we meet you in it. It's about you, and it's about what you have to say about us. And what you expect of us. And Lord, as we close out this series, Father, we pray that we wouldn't leave numbers behind us. We would revisit it frequently. uh, Help us to cherish and hold the things that we learn in it. And I pray in the next uh, few minutes here, Father, that as we open it, uh, you would speak once again to us through numbers in a way that leaves us um, better equipped to work for Christ and his kingdom. We ask it for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, please turn in the book of Numbers to the very last chapter of the book of Numbers, chapter 36. Chapter 36. Um, Once again, I'm reminded that uh, (laughs) Scripture is surprising because it doesn't seem like a real awesome conclusion. It just seems like it just kind of ends, goes back to a topic it's addressed already before. But it's important for us. And the reason why it's important is because you need to ask yourself this question. It's a simple question, but just think about it. If God promises you something, does that mean it'll happen? If God gives you a promise, can that promise be threatened? Are there loopholes we're like, ah, but I didn't think think about it. I mean, as a parent, just yesterday I, I I told my youngest, okay, we're how about we do this today? Oh yeah, that's great, great. We're gonna do that. Then when the time came to do that, didn't look like it was gonna happen. A little bit of disappointment. I was approached. <laughs> uh, what was my explanation? Well. Yes, I said that, but I didn't see this coming. I didn't know this was going to happen. See, that, that, that is not about my dishonesty so much as it is my limitations as a human. God has limitations, or does he? You might say God's limitations are your limitations. In other words, God offers promises, but if you don't do your part, if you don't do your thing, there's some loopholes there. Loopholes is a problem throughout the entire Bible. God makes promises, and things threaten that promise. That's why the Bible is so long. If there weren't threats to the promise, it'd be a pretty short story. God promises it. We're like, okay, cool, and then that's it. But there's these constant threats to God's promise. God promises that the world is going to be, multi, you know, full of population and beautiful and bounteous. Oops, Adam and Eve sin. Sin enters the world. Now it's difficult. To till the ground. Now it's difficult to give birth. Why does God curse in those two specific ways—thorns and thistles, the labor of producing fruit from the ground, and the difficulty, the increased pain, and in child labor? It's not like God was like, "What are two that is going to really get them?" It's because now, how hard is it going to be to fulfill that promise that the earth is going to be full, full of uh, the garden, the garden expanding to the whole world. That lush, beautiful garden, fruit and trees and crops and agriculture. Well, now that's hard, and it looks like the promise is threatened. Filling the whole earth with people, well, that's hard now because it looks like that promise is threatened. So ever since the first pages of Scripture, God says, look, it's going to be like this, and then we mess it up. Because of loopholes and uh, threats to God's promises, we might be tempted to question whether God is the kind of father that doesn't get taken by surprise, that has foreseen the threats, and secures what he promises anyway. We're going to see that in Numbers 36, not the longest of chapters that we've had, so we will read the entirety by the time we're done. But before we jump into it, I need to remind you of what happened in chapter 27. This was back when Nathan Miller preached that passage for us. And here's the issue. The issue is about inheritance. God promises that these 12 tribes are going to inherit this land, this geographical land that right now is run by the Canaanites. And the way that land inheritance works is that if the father dies in a particular family, and that family would be a part of a clan, which is part of a tribe, the father dies, then that land gets divided between the sons of that father. That's how it works. But in Numbers 27, the issue was you had one guy that belonged to the clan of Manasseh who had a daughter, and then another daughter, and then he had another daughter, He didn't have any sons. And then he died. So those daughters approached Moses and said, Hey, this seems not fair. I get it. Patriarchal society, sons inherit from their fathers. They're not challenging that. But they're saying in this particular case, there are no sons. There's only us, the daughters. And our father died. And what's more, our father didn't die by rebelling, he wasn't punished by God. In that rebellion of of Korah, that big rebellion where God had to crush a bunch of people. Otherwise, all of Israel is going to be lost. You remember that? He wasn't a part of that group. He wasn't perfect. He had his own sins, they say. But he wasn't part of that group. It doesn't seem fair that the inheritance that was promised to our family just gets obliterated. Moses is like, huh. Didn't think of that. He didn't literally say that, but you read between the lines. Why? Because he goes and takes it to the Lord. The Lord, he, he goes to the Lord and he's like, um, what do we do here? You have one rule that says land is supposed to go to the sons. But this other bigger rule that says land is not supposed to be lost. It's a promise of God. So the promise of God for the family to have the land is threatened by a family's not having sons. And it's not a sin issue. It's not their fault. So what, what do you do? God's response to Moses, they are correct. That's true. It's a legitimate problem. So what we're going to do, and in our day and age, this is like, yeah, right? Give it to the women. Give it to them. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, that was completely unheard of then. Women don't inherit land. God is saying, my promise is secure and I don't need, it's not going to be threatened by that rule. The daughters will inherit the land. It will be theirs because they have no brothers. So that was the solution back in chapter 27. Now we find ourselves in chapter 36 and the leaders of the clan of those sisters, they run into a dilemma. Here's here's the new dilemma. What do you do? You got this land. Oops, they didn't have any brothers. These sisters are sharing that inheritance of the land. Threat to the promise taken care of, right? Until those ladies go to the supermarket, they meet a nice guy. They start dating. After a few dates, they get engaged. Put a ring on it. Ask the parents' permission. It's going down. Wait a minute. The night before the wedding, you realize. Wait a minute. This dude belongs to another clan and if he becomes the patriarch of that family her land now goes to him and their sons therefore that clan which belongs to that tribe just lost some physical territory but it was promised to them now what do you do and they bring it to moses who then brings it to the lord look at the top of chapter 36 the heads of the father's houses of the clan of the people of Gilead, the son of Machir, son of Manasseh. So Manasseh is the tribe. So now we've got the heads of the father's houses. These are the guys that are at the top of running the guys, telling the guys what to do. From the clans of the people of Joseph, they came near and spoke before Moses and before the chiefs, the heads of the father's houses of the people of Israel. You see, this is a really big deal. you got Moses, all his chiefs, all the people in charge the heads of the clans, the father's houses. Verse 2, they said, The Lord commanded my Lord to give the land for inheritance to the lot, by lot to the people of Israel. Great. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance to Zelophehad. That's the father that passed away and didn't have any sons. So we're supposed to give the inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, to his daughters. Great. That's fine. We figured that out in chapter 27. But, verse 3, If they are married to any of the sons of the other tribes of the people of Israel, now here's the problem, the threat of the inheritance. Then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers and added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. See, the tribe of Manasseh is now losing land if these daughters who own land are marrying off into other clans. So it will be taken away from the lot of our inheritance and when the jubilee of the people of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry, and their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. Do you see how many times this pastor says inheritance, inheritance, inheritance? If You ask yourself, huh, what's this about? Watch for repetition. Now, he brings up the issue of jubilee in verse 4, and it, we have to kind of track back to our series in Leviticus, but back in Leviticus 25, the year of Jubilee was after seven cycles of seven years, so 49 years, that 50th year, I'll check this out, that 50th year, no matter what you owe anybody, it's wiped. They hit a reset on your FICA score. They hit a reset on your credit card bills. All the stuff you owe the university, Delete. Anyone that is a slave because they're paying something off, back then slavery was about I owe this, I owe this debt, I can't pay it, well then I'll be your slave for however long it takes to pay that off. Delete. You're free. People that are in prison for legitimate crimes. Open. Not forgiving one person, like a president posturing, like, who am I gonna forgive to make it look like I'm so awesome? How about this person? Everybody. All the jail cells just open. Every 50th year, God's mercy and freedom that he offers, the liberty that he offers people undeservingly will be celebrated by that big reset button. Part of that reset button would be any land that was originally owned by one person that because of issues, because of problems, or to make money, they would lend that land out, lease it, rent it out, or sell a portion of it to try to make ends meet. When that reset button gets hit in the year of Jubilee, all land, it doesn't matter what your lease says, goes back to the original owner. Now, what they're saying is, look, we're trying to look ahead. This is a problem, and we're looking ahead to the year of Jubilee, and when that big reset button hits, the land won't even come back to us. So not only are we losing land, which is our inheritance, it was promised to us, we're losing it through marriages, or we might lose it through marriages. They haven't married yet, the daughters. But we're even trying to think, like, we don't have to approach Moses. We'll just have to wait it out to the year of Jubilee. And the guys are like, no. You Imagine this big meeting. They're sitting around a table. And they're like, no, the year of Jubilee won't counteract the fact that through marriage, those, those portions of land actually belong to those, that new family, that new last name and their kids. This is a problem. Let's take it to Moses. And so they take it to Moses. And at first, you don't see that Moses goes to the Lord, but he did. If you read verse 5, it says, And Moses commanded the people of Israel according to the word of the Lord. See, he did. He consulted. What does God say to this? It's not written down in Leviticus. He checked the pages of law, and it's not in there. So he goes to God. What does God say? Again, just like in chapter 27, the tribe of the people of Joseph is right. They're correct. It is a legitimate problem. And you'll notice in both instances, God doesn't go, you dumb, stiff-necked people, questioning my promise, questioning my inheritance. You don't think I thought of this. You don't th- no, none of that. You're right. It's almost like, good job. You're thinking, this is a problem. It is a problem. He doesn't berate them for lack of wisdom. He doesn't tell them, I can't believe you're bringing this to me. Both times, he specifically tells Moses they are correct. The daughters were correct by bringing this up. They're not being complainy women. They're not nagging you. It's true. And then here, you don't just have a tribe that's trying to get more than they should have. Manasseh, who's on the other side of the Jordan anyway, they should have crossed over with. Just forget those people. None of that. I promised it. They should have it. But this is an issue. And it looks like they're going to lose what I've promised them. Again, a very surprisingly simple solution. Okay? This is what the Lord tells them to do. Verse 6, this is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zelophehad. Let them marry whom they think best, only they shall marry within the clans of the tribe of their father. So It's kind of like when Henry Ford releases... Model T and said, you can get any color you want, as long as it's black. (laughs) Right? You can marry anybody you want, it just has to stay within this clan. Don't marry outside of this clan. Now, you might think to yourself, wow, that's kind of limited. What if I, but I've fallen in love, I've fallen in love. The land, the land, the land, the inheritance, the promise, don't derail that. Right? Better Better to marry one of these dudes... Then marry outside this clan and lose your inheritance. I don't think this is the main point, but I do think we 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 can take some cues about marriage from passages like this. Marry whoever you want, as long as the person you marry isn't going to derail what you're supposed to be about. And it's not like their clan was five people. I mean, there's people to choose from. But, you know, if, if, you're, if you're scrolling through Hollywood pages and you're like, which one of these superstars might... Yeah, bring, bring that down a little bit and let's start looking for character. Let's start looking for somebody who's on the same page with you in terms of inheritance. I don't want to go too far on that because it's, a, it's really a, a, a minor point from this is not driving about marriage. But it is interwoven into this idea that the inheritance is first. The inheritance is of utmost importance. And we're going to have to take your marriage... Even if you've been dreaming about marriage since you were three years old, the kind of person you marry and where you're going to go, you need to subordinate that to the promise of inheritance because this is more important. So what God says of the solution is pretty simple, as long as you subordinate marriage to this greater issue. The greater issue is the land, not marriage. So what we're going to do is make sure that these daughters marry whoever they want, as long as the marriage is within their clan, and then there's no issue subordinating things, even as important, even as life-altering as marriage, subordinating it to the promise of the inheritance. And in that way, God eliminates the threat against losing their land. And so he tells them there's not going to be any transferring. We'll continue reading. Verse 7, the inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another. For every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his father. See, that's the promise. I'm giving this inheritance and you will keep this inheritance. This inheritance will not be transferred to somebody else. You're not going to lose it. Verse 8, and every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the people of Israel shall be wife to one of the clan of the tribe of her father, so that every one of the people of Israel may possess the inheritance of his fathers. In other words, this isn't just going to be true for this tribe. This is going to be true for every tribe. Marry within your tribe. Why? To protect the inheritance of the promise of the land. Verse 9, so no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another, for each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to its own inheritance. You will hold your inheritance. It's secured. Verse 10, the daughters of Zelophehad did as the Lord commanded Moses. And here are their names, For if you're looking for baby names <laughs> for your little girls, I don't know. Mala, Tirza Hagla, I wonder what she got called for short. Milcah and Noah, the daughters of Zelophehad, were married to sons of their father's brother. So they followed through. They did what they were supposed to do. They were married into the clans of the people of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. And their inheritance, there's a word again, remained in the tribe of their father's clan. That's the point. It was threatened and God protected it. The land inheritance remains in the tribe of their father's clan. These are the commandments and the rules that the Lord commanded through Moses to the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. The end of the book. That's it. Remember the daughters that had that problem back in 27? Yeah, they had another problem. And the answer was, well, just marry within your clan. You'll protect the land. End of book of numbers. Uh, I wonder if this was given to an editor at a regular publishing house be like where's your ending you know but that's because we underestimate the problem of lost inheritance that's the problem and I think that's a problem that we continue to struggle with today and what I want to do is round out what we see here in numbers 36 with some New Testament passages That will bear out this truth that i think this numbers 36 is driving at and the reason why it concludes with this they're marching through the wilderness about to take this land well can we keep the land once we take this land will we stay in the land once we keep this land will we can we derail it what about loopholes forget about giants armor chariots will we be killed let's say none of us get killed let's say we're able to decimate every army that ever stands against us great but God, your own rules seem to counteract the whole only boys inherit, the whole marriage thing, the Jubilee thing, it seems like it's a threat. It's an internal threat. And I think what this passage is communicating is that we can be assured that the Lord will guard our inheritance against threats. The Lord will guard our inheritance against threats of various kinds, even legitimate threats, not threats where we would go, oh, that's so dumb, don't worry about that. That's not what God says. He's like, they're correct, they're right, that's a legitimate problem, but I'm still taking care of it. And to do that, I want to ask you to turn with me to one more passage. We'll put a few up here, passages up on the screen, but for this one, I want you to turn to Hebrews 11. So toward the back of your Bible, toward the back of your Bibles, you'll find the book of Hebrews, Right after 1st and 2nd Timothy, Philemon, Hebrews, but before James. When you get to Hebrews chapter 11, I want you to understand, because it's been a while. I started this whole series of Numbers many weeks ago by explaining why the book of Numbers prefigures our journey with Christ. But here's Numbers 11 doing the same thing. What does their inheritance have to do with us today? If you get to number uh, Hebrews chapter 11, if you drop down to verse 8, it's talking about Abraham, the one who originally received this promise about the, the land and the tribes. It says, we're going to read a couple paragraphs here, eight, 8 through 16. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as a what? Inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. What inheritance? He didn't have a, there was no coordinates or anything. He's like, I'm going to give you an inheritance. Where? Just go. Shut up. Verse 9, by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So they're living in the land of promise, but it's still not theirs. They're foreigners in the land. For he was looking forward. So so in other words, let's pause there for a second. Verse 9, he's in the land of promise, but he didn't get it. Right? He didn't really receive it. It's not his. He's living in tents. He's a foreigner. And what the author of Hebrews is telling you, but by faith, he did get it. Because, in, in, you know, in, in parentheses, it's not about the geographical land. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, the real city, the city of real substance, whose designer and builder is God, not a city that man can build. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. That was another threat to the promise. She's supposed to have a child. The child is going to carry the promise. She can't have the child. God solved it. Even when she was past the age, since she she considered him who had promised faithful. Verse 12, Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, And as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. In other words, they didn't get the land either. But having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For the people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. Pause real quick. They're hoping for land, but the author of Hebrews is telling you, you think they were hoping for that little sliver in the fertile crescent? That land that we call Israel today, you think that's their ultimate hope? That that ultimately, they could have just gone back. Why didn't they? Because they were looking for something better. Verse 16, but as it is, they desire a better country, a better land. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. What is the author of Hebrews saying? The author of Hebrews saying is Abraham was given promise of a geographical, physical land. But even though when he was there, it wasn't really his, and even though his descendants were out of it, in and out of it, it, it wasn't really ever really about that land, was it? That land prefigures. A heavenly one one where God builds the foundations one that is secure and it's not secured by might or forces I'm not going to talk about the place of the geographical land of Israel that's a different sermon and we do want to have lunch eventually the simple point I'm trying to make is whatever you make of the geographical land of Israel it is a picture pictures matter Like we talked about with communion, but it's still a picture of something greater. So according to the author of Hebrews, when you're reading through the book of Numbers and they're talking about, ooh, what about the inheritance? He's like, yeah, that's a picture of, ooh, what about your inheritance? Not in the Fertile Crescent, not in the actual land of Israel, but all of God's inheritance. The meek shall inherit the earth, this renewed earth that God builds that we can't build. That's our hope. And Abraham's story is one full of threats, but God always protects the promise that He gives Abraham against those threats. And you can read Abraham's story and you're like, huh? Abraham never really got the promise, did he? And this guy's like, yeah, he did, because Abraham by faith looked to a better land, the one that the physical land represents. And we all look to that when we're in Christ. That's how this passage has to do with you, and that's why the question I opened up with has everything to do with you and that's why Christians debate it so much if God promises you salvation can it be robbed if God promises you you'll inherit the earth will he come through on that promise or are there loopholes are there loopholes to it where you're like oh he promised it but caveat number six this internal threat won the day and I know that's controversial But I think that's what Scripture drives at. I think that's what Numbers 36, that's what makes Numbers 36 so important. Flip back to chapter 9, just really quickly, Hebrews 9. If you're already in chapter 11, you can flip back to 9, 9, verse 15. Therefore, he, Christ, you see, see that up in verse 14. Therefore, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant Why? Why is Christ the mediator? Why is he a better mediator of this better covenant? He's better than Moses, and this new covenant is better than Moses' covenant. Why did Jesus have to be that mediator? So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, what about all those sins? How can we inherit How can we inherit if we're sinners? And the author of Hebrews is like, good question. That is a legitimate problem. Not, you're so dumb. God doesn't really care that much about sins. Yes, he does. More than you think. It is a threat. And we shouldn't mock Christians that question their eternal inheritance because they've sinned. We need to take sin seriously. Not go, don't you understand grace? Don't you understand sin? It is a legitimate question to ask. It's not solved by sweeping it under the rug. It's solved by how much bigger Christ's death is than our sins. That's what he says in that verse. And Jesus is an effective mediator because he becomes the mediator so that. Why does he become the mediator? So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal Inheritance. So, can I make Christ's work ineffective? Is another way to ask the question. Christ became a mediator of this new relationship with me and God so that I, we, can receive the inheritance. Can I undo that and make Christ go, ah, I tried? It doesn't seem like that's what the verse is saying. It seems like he does it because it's effective. A few verses quickly. We'll put these up on the screen. We're going to turn quickly to Colossians. Because if you, if you think about this issue of calling, Jesus becomes his new mediator because those who are called receive the promised inheritance. That's very much wrapped up with the idea of inheritance, the fact that we're called. Not that we figured it out, but we're called. We're elected. And you see that in Colossians chapter 1. We'll see verses 11 and 12. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the what? In the inheritance of the saints in the light. Who qualifies you? God qualifies you. How does he qualify you? By making you perfect? No. No by someone else being perfect and standing in your stead that's how he does it so ultimately you are when you question whether the thing you looked at last night whether those atrocities maybe you committed before you came to know jesus maybe some messed up stuff that you're getting involved in and broiled in now as a christian You have every right, in fact the obligation, to have those things put the question in your mind. Do I have the inheritance? But if you know Christ, if you've come to him and you're washed by his forgiveness, he, verse 13, that's not on the screen, but the next verse, he delivered us from the domain of darkness. And there's the word, transferred us to the kingdom. So we have this inheritance because God Qualifies us. He's the one that does the work that it takes to be in this covenant. Another passage, very powerful, in Ephesians chapter one. These are familiar to us, but I think it's really important to think about what does the New Testament, what do the New Testament authors do with this concept of inheritance in answering the question that we posed, that I posed, in verse 11 of Ephesians chapter one. In him, in Christ, that's back up in verse 9, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. How did we obtain that inheritance? Having been predestined. I'm sorry, I I only preach it when it's there. And I know I selected the verse, but predestination was not a made-up term by Calvin. I'm not talking about Calvinism. How did we receive the inheritance? By being predestined. Predestined according to what? What? According to looking down the corridor of time and seeing how good I'm going to be? No. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of what he wants to do. He wants them to have the inheritance. They get the inheritance. Does that sound secure? Why does he do that? So that, those, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory you drop down to same chapter, 13 of 14. This is also on the screen. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed. Now, let me just pause there a second and ask you, if you're walking down the aisle of Jewel, and you grab a jar of pickles, and you go to grab it, and you notice that plastic wrap thing is not around the edge, And then you look and the pop goes, you put it back or do you go, huh, all the pickles are still in there. (laughs) The whole purpose of a seal is to guarantee this has not been tampered with. So when God says through Paul that we've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That seal guards against tampering of the inheritance. Verse 14 That Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of his glory. Just like Abraham. We don't have it yet, but it's guaranteed. By faith, we see that far country that we're not in yet. That we don't enjoy yet. We're here now and it's terrible. I know. Hard days. But by faith, we grasp that there's something coming. This hope that's been secured for us and that something has been guaranteed guaranteed, promised, it's secured, it's sealed. What is sealed? Verse 14, the inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Really quickly in verse 18, I know I need to move. Verse 18, our eyes have been enlightened that, you, that we may know what is the hope to which he has called us. I'm pluralizing it, us. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the hope to which he has called you? How can you hope in the inheritance if we can easily derail it? If your father was like, hey, next weekend we're going to do this. Hey, next weekend we're going to do that. How about Friday we do this? And then Friday comes and he's not around. The weekend comes, he doesn't do it. And at first you're like, okay, there's excuses. He had to work, he had to do this. But back to back to back to back, how are you going to feel as a child? The 50th time when your father is like, okay, tomorrow afternoon we're going to go do this. Yeah, right. I'll see it when it happens. Right? Do we treat God's inheritance that way? This is what the Bible is trying to divest you of. God is not that kind of father. He's a father that seals it, guarantees it, so that you can hope in it. So that you can hope in it. Last verse. Colossians three. Well, there's two more verses. I'm sorry, but it, it's important. Colossians three twenty-three. Colossians three twenty-three. Twenty-three and twenty-four. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Verse twenty-four. Knowing what's going to drive you to work hard for Christ. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you've heard this. If you've been around Christians long enough and we're debating about whether God's inheritance is really secure, you've heard this. If it's so secure, that's going to demotivate me to work. Huh. Not according to Paul. Paul sees it the opposite, doesn't he? It's when you understand that you've got this inheritance that you're going to now work hard. It's discouraging. When you think that the inheritance is based on your performance, it's discouraging because you don't perform consistently. Neither do I. And if day to day, week to week, month to month, I'm like, oh, do I have the inheritance now? Maybe. I think so. Did I get it back? I don't know. Did I lose it? I'm not sure. That's demotivating. But if I can take my sins and my weaknesses and take them to the Lord and say, God, I, fix this. I want to work for you I want to I want to be a part of that throng that enters into this inherited better country the city of foundations that is supposed to motivate us to work hard according to the word of the Lord and to balance it out now the last verse Ephesians 5 because of course we get confused and we're like well I guess if it's that secure I guess if it's that guaranteed it's that sealed I guess I can go live however I want Well, that's not working heartily for the Lord, first of all. And then Ephesians 5, verse 5, just as one example. You may be sure of this. Here's another thing you can be sure of. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, we get stuck on that first one. Oh, yeah, sexual immorality. That's the only one we'll pay attention to. Everything else, we just give everybody a pass. Keep listening. Sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater. What doesn't that cover? Has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. If you're living in unrepentant sin and you don't take it seriously, you don't have an inheritance. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what prayer you said, how long you've been in church. But Paul's not talking about, oh, I messed up. See, He's not talking about the people, those of us who we struggle with certain things. That's going to be true. He's talking about people who categorically say, yeah, I'll come to church. I'll take communion. I'll sit in the pew. I'll do the church thing. But outside of these doors, I'm going to live however I want. That person is not in. The rest of us, though, we're in, but we, we get hit with that question. Is this a threat to the inheritance? And the answer is no. Stop doing those things that grieve the Lord. Start doing those things that please him and work heartily unto him. Not because the inheritance is a question mark, but because it's an exclamation mark. It's secured for us through Christ who qualifies us. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to you for the tremendous promise of your word. We don't even know exactly what it will look like. We know it's going to be beautiful. We know it's going to be... Uh, It is going to involve a new earth where there is no disease, where there are no viruses, there are no vaccines, there are no political parties, there are no debates on Facebook, there are no heartaches, there are no losses, there are no deaths, there's no disease. As difficult as it is for us to imagine that, that's our reward. Not our reward secured by our performance, but the reward secured by Christ's performance through us. And we cling to that hope. It's a sure promise. We thank you for the guarantee. We thank you for the promise. We thank you for the seal. Ensuring that our inheritance cannot be transferred. That we keep it because you are faithful. And I pray that each of us leaves here motivated to work for you because of your promise. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.